Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. We're introduced to the concept of the temple here, and it's got a very Jewish flavor. Features of the temple are obviously the features of the real temple uh, from the Old Testament and the day when Jesus walked on the earth as well, Herod's temple. You've got the inner court, you've got the outer court. But John is seeing this vision of a temple, and the command comes for him to take a a measuring rod and go and measure the temple of God measure the altar with its worshipers don't measure the outside court it's been given to the Gentiles now I will say at this point that this entire chapter is very difficult we don't have a consensus among scholars interpreting this so there's a number of different ways people to look at this And they will continue to debate this until the Lord comes and gives us answers to all these questions that we have. But he does see a temple. We do understand that the command is given to measure the temple. And one thing that seems rather obvious, whether some people interpret this as being the the temple that was actually... Uh, Herod's temple in Jesus' day and the coming destruction of it, but that doesn't work. I mean, I know some people interpret that way, but John probably wrote Revelation in the 90s, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so it really doesn't look back to that temple. Some people look forward to a future temple. (coughs) That's been one of the most popular concepts concerning this. And uh, we have uh, (coughs) people who are all the time gauging modern day events and trying to measure that and determine are we, are we seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, for instance, those who believe there's going to be a future temple are waiting for that time when the Jews get busy and industrious and start rebuilding the temple on their site in Israel. And of course, the land is in dispute now. Uh, what they believe to be the original temple site is occupied by a, a mosque. And so we have people who believe that the future temple's got to be built, so the mosque has got to come down. 
We want, that's our sight. We want that. Then there's other people that don't believe it really refers to a literal future temple. And this is symbolic of something that is perhaps the sent temple is symbolic of just the believers and the outer court, the non-believers. Now, I'm not going to get into that today. I'm not going to get, try and give you definitive answers to it. But what I am going to say is, even though all of that is in dispute and being debated by finer scholars than, than I am, uh, there's one thing that seems to stand out if we just lay that aside, and that is the measuring of the temple is closely associated with the judgments that are going on beforehand and afterhand. So if the measuring has anything to do with the judgments, and it appears as though there's a logical connection between that, then maybe the measuring of the temple implies that there will be a certain part which will be protected, and that which is outside of the measuring is not protected. Now that, I think most could at least concede, that is a reasonable interpretation without debating even the other issues that I've brought up. But we find out as we, we study other passages in the Bible that God is interested in keeping exact calculations on things. What he is deeply interested in, he constantly measures to see if it's up to his standards. You're being measured all the time. God loves his church. He's constantly measuring his church. So here we have the temple that God loves the temple and it's commanded to be measured. But it appears as though what is measured is protected. And what is not measured is outside. It's given to the Gentiles. Don't worry about it. So once again it refers to God setting limits for the impact of judgment that is described in this book. And then it moves rapidly after mentioning the temple to him saying, I'm going to send my two witnesses. And he said, these two witnesses are the olive trees. They are the two lampstands. And we're supposed to understand the olive trees and the lampstands. John just, I mean, uh, in his vision, it's, it's declared to him, these are the olive trees and the lampstands. So what are those? Which book of the Bible do you go to find that? You go back to Zechariah, and there, are, there is a... Uh, a picture there, a vision, where there are two olive branches, two olive trees, and two lampstands, and we covered this a few sermons back. And the immediate interpretation and application of that scripture was that Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who was the governor, would be used to restore the temple. Now, does it have any other application to that? Well, in this vision, he says, my two witnesses are the lampstands and the olive trees. So now you've got more speculation that you can partake in. More debate. So does this mean Joshua and Zerubbabel are going to come back as the two witnesses? Some believe that to be the case. Of course, the argument against that is, how many times does a person have to die? And we who, who believe that you don't come and die twice, you you, you become immortal after you die. You can't kill immortal people. So that line of thinking says, well, it can't be Joshua and Zerubbabel. And then some look at the miracles that these witnesses perform. And 
the miracles quite obviously have some resemblance to some characters in the Old Testament. The fire, Elijah was associated with fire. Remember the great showdown on Mount Carmel. And the other one is turning waters into blood and sending plagues on the earth puts a lot of people in the memory of Moses. So Elijah and Moses have been suggested as being logical uh, candidates for the two witnesses. But then you got the same people who are arguing Moses can't die twice. You can't be Moses. And then you got people who argue back and say, well, now wait a minute. Nobody really saw Moses die. He just kind of went off in the wilderness and just him and God. Maybe God transported him. And this is, this is actually Jewish tradition. They don't believe Moses died. In spite of the fact that Deuteronomy says, and Moses died. Well, that didn't make any difference. It's getting in the way of my theory. We believe that's just to mislead us. But God took him off somewhere and transported him to save him for this time. Well, yeah, what do you want to do with those? How much time do you want to spend on them? So instead of Moses, some suggest, well, the only two, two candidates in the Bible that really qualify this is Elijah. And there's only one other person that has a parallel circumstance to him, and that's Enoch. So Enoch and Elijah both were taken to heaven. No evidence of having passed through the veil of death to get there. No evidence of having really uh, become immortal. So that group of believers and that school of thought believes that uh, Elijah and Enoch have been in heaven in their physical form for this many years. And they're just waiting for their opportunity to come back and die and get their spiritual body. And this is a perfect opportunity for them to come back and witness and get killed. Now they can go to heaven like everybody else and be immortal. Of course the people who argue with that say but flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom which is a misapplication of that anyway. So I've just given you all kinds of junk to bother you. But we've got two witnesses. And these witnesses are interesting because they uh, they annoy everybody around them. They annoy the whole world. And the world has had it up to here with these two witnesses who are performing miracles. They are prophesying. They are coming as representatives of the Lord. And we've already seen how hard-hearted the world is and how they are rejecting the judgments of God. They're not yielding. They're not surrendering the previous chapter, neither did they repent or their murders and their sorceries and, and their thefts and uh, they're not repenting. And so these two witnesses come and they send more plagues on the earth. It says if anybody tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes them. Now God is wise in who he entrusts his giftings to. He dare not give me that gift. I don't have the disposition to control my mouth. With that kind of a gift, and people trying to harm me, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be reducing people to ashes all day long, all week long. Take that. <laughs> so God in his wisdom has not seen fit to give me the power to destroy people with fire out of my mouth. But to these two witnesses, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes in their mouth and devours their enemies. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens, so it won't rain. It sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? And during this whole time, they're prophesying. What do you think they're prophesying? 
to this world. And the message is pretty obvious, isn't it? The judgment of God is here. You better get right. More is coming, and the world does not want to hear it. Insomuch so, that eventually the world goes against the witnesses and kills them. And they lie dead in the streets. Now let me read a little further. When they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss and will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Don't let you, don't let that throw you. That's, that's describing the wicked condition of the occupants of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's the great city. And it's become so wicked that it's figuratively Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some of the people from some from every people, every tribe, every language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse to bury them. Just let them lay there. And here's the reason. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate. Get this. Wrap your brain around this. These two witnesses who have annoyed the world finally are killed by the beast out of the abyss. And the world is celebrating. The Bible says by sending gifts to one another. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it strange how we celebrate things? We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate Christmas. We give gifts on Valentine's Day. And by the way, the witnesses are dead. Well, let's go buy gifts for everybody. This is a great day. And the world is stupid with celebration that these witnesses that they could not stand are finally out of their hair. And the celebration goes on. In last Sunday's sermon, we took note of the hard-hearted rebels' stubborn refusal to repent, even when they were confronted with the most powerful, devastating plagues of demonic locusts and torturous pain that refused to repent. But here we see an even deeper dimension of their calloused resistance. Not only are they refusing to repent, they are so wicked and so twisted and so demented and so vile. They are celebrating the death of the witnesses. Their bodies are lying in the open and everybody refuses to bury them. And the Bible says they are gloating over their death. I don't know how many of you remember the, the fall of uh, Saddam Hussein. But they, the people who were finally released from the despotic rule of Saddam Hussein went out and found a huge statue and pulled that statue down. And they were beaten on it with hammers. And the culture in that area considered it the ultimate insult to hit somebody with your shoe. So there's all these people out there has one shoe off and they're just beating this statue. It's the great insult of that culture. And that's just because they were glad to be rid of that. Now you see another scene here where it's the two righteous witnesses and you see the same kind of frenzy, insane frenzy, as people are so glad these witnesses are dead and they are mocking and they are gloating and they are celebrating and they are throwing parties over the death of the witness. 
And what John describes here can be described as nothing less than wicked insanity. Now let me make this point. All victories by the godless are temporary and insignificant. Mark that. Write that down. Memorize that. You have to understand that regardless of the success of the beast in killing these two witnesses, the fact is his success is short-lived. They have needled the world with their prophecies and their presence and representation of God, and the world has killed them, and they are celebrating, but their celebration, their party is going to be a short one. They think it's over. But three and a half days later, the Spirit, the breath of God, raises these two witnesses to life again. There is a span of time during which those two witnesses lie dead in the streets and the world celebrates, and it looks like a low point for God's team. It looks like the witnesses he's sent have been defeated. It looks like the world has won. The celebration by the enemy and the noisy uh, party that's going on drowns out the voice of hope that anything good is going to happen. After all, they're dead. What happens after you're dead? Not much. It's over. That's about as final as we human beings can describe it and imagine it. The witnesses came. The world hated them. The world killed them. The world celebrates. We won. But when we read a par the part about now God takes action. And the Spirit of God, the breath of God, enters into them, and behold, they're alive again. Because the enemy doesn't have permanent victories. He has temporary victories. And no matter what you're fighting in your life, and how you feel like you've been hit, for, you've been set back, you've taken a loss of yardage, I want you to remember that the enemy's battle against you is only temporary. He might th think and suggest he's won the battle, therefore he's won the war. But the battle's not the war. And even the effects of the battle can be reversed. They think they've won. The witnesses are dead. The witnesses come back to life because God has not had his say yet. That is one of the most thrilling passages of Scripture. There is nothing that is more terrifying to the enemy than to discover that he has given his best shot and it's not enough. There's nothing more terrifying for him to be convinced he has won, it's over, it's in his pocket and have his pocket picked by God. When the battle seems it's been firmly decided, and when the victims are dead and rotting in the streets, and when the victory was so certain there was dancing in the street for three solid days, when the enemy has emphatically claimed victory, and then to see that total reversal and victory, as they say, snatched from the jaws 
of defeat. It's a testament to the fact that no matter how grave and how hopeless any situation may seem to you, let me quote Yogi Berra, it ain't over until it's over. Until God has had his say, and he can reverse anything that looks hopeless and impossible in your world. So, I want you to address the enemy. And I want you to tell him it ain't over until God says it's over. I want you to remind the enemy God hasn't made his move yet. Don't you get too cocky. Don't you get to thinking you've got this thing won. My God hasn't made his move yet. And when he makes his move, he's going to take away what you stole from me. He's going to restore it sevenfold, tenfold, a hundredfold. God's got the victory. And the enemy doesn't want you to remember that and think about that. He wants you to concede while the chips are down. He wants you to cash it in while it seems all hopeless. He wants you just to quit before the whole war is done. But you hold on. Don't you quit. God's got control of this and he is going to gain the victory in the end. He never loses. He will win the battle. He will win the war. You say, but God, it seems so late. That's just the way God has a habit of doing things. He likes the drama, I guess. He likes to keep you on the edge of your seat. He likes to see how you're going to respond when it looks like there's nothing he can do. Then he rolls up his sleeves and says, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> it's never too late for God. This same God who can raise two slain witnesses from the streets after three and a half days. This is the same God who raised his own son from the cold tomb after three days and three nights. This is the same God who is fighting your battle in your behalf right now. Forget how impossible situations may seem. Forget the taunting claim by the enemy that he has won. When God makes his move, the enemy begins to panic because he understands, once again, they will not win. All victories seem so decisive in their behavior, and then they just evaporate. It's happened again and again and again and again, all through history, and the enemy just can't get it. He just doesn't understand. He doesn't grasp. It doesn't make any difference how firmly he thinks he's got his hands on the trophy. It's not over. God will win. God will hold the trophy. And then in this chapter God puts an exclamation point on this. It says in that 13th verse at that very hour there was a there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Now listen to this. This is going to surprise you. 7,000 people, people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. You know, we've just seen the hardness of the hearts of men and women who refuse to turn to God in spite of the judgments. We've just seen the two witnesses who came and didn't appear that they got any converts. 
they just ministered and got killed for it. And then after the witnesses are raised and, and taken up to heaven, God sends an earthquake and splits the city. Thousands are killed in the earthquake, but finally, somehow, finally, it gets through to some of the survivors who come to the point of saying, okay, I get it now. I surrender. I give up. I'm tired of fighting this battle. It's useless to fight against God. Like the old preacher said one time, your arm's too short to box with God. And God uses this earthquake as this exclamation point on his victory when the witnesses are resurrected and taken to heaven. He does this so the world makes no mistake about who they're dealing with and how powerful he is. You can kill his witnesses, but he'll just raise them back to life again. You just can't fight God. And as the survivors look on, having survived and experienced all this is going on in the earth, but suddenly the earthquake comes and the survivors say, I, I, I surrender. Lord, you've conquered. I can't fight you anymore. You know, you've got friends and you've got relatives that you've talked to. You've tried to talk to them about the Lord. And so far, they just haven't budged. They're not interested. They don't care. They don't understand what you understand. They don't share your sentiments about God, about church. You just wish they would open their eyes. You wish they would understand the gravity of the situation, but they're not budging. And you're at the end of your ropes. I don't know what I'm going to do. What is it going to take to convert them? I don't know. But I know that you can't give up. Because there may come a point where that, there is that exclamation point in their life. There is that earthquake in their life. Where finally they come face to face with God and they say, I am tired of running. I am tired of fighting. I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm, I've got to give up. I've got to surrender to God. And you know when that happens, you're going to say it was worth every step of the way. It was worth every pain, every turmoil, every, turmoil, every prayer, every battle I had to fight, every, every confrontation I had with his people. It's finally worth it because now they're turning to God. I, I've seen some hard cases turn to God in my, in my life. People you would have written off and said, that's the hardest people ever seen in my life. I don't think it'll ever come to God. I preached a revival up in Gilman City, Missouri. And there was a man there that he wasn't saved in my revival. He had just gotten saved just before I got there. So he was a part of this revival. He, he was a, a, a very friendly man. He just had this glow about him, this smile on his face. He had this imposing stature. He was a wonderful man. But he was the, he was the nastiest man in that little town. He had the filthiest mouth in town. And something got a hold of him. And he got saved and got into church. Now, all the burrs weren't filed off yet. 
And the pastor said, I asked him to end in prayer one time, and he said he slipped a, color, a few colorful words in there. I think the whole congregation understood. Well, he's come a long ways, God. <laughs> Last week, he couldn't even pray. This week, he's praying. A little salty, but... But what a turnaround for this man. I preached the, first, the second revival I ever preached in my life. The first one was in Lineville, Iowa. The second one was in Mercer, Missouri, just nine miles down the road. Second revival ever preached in my life went three weeks. I didn't have three weeks worth of sermons. But, but I had three weeks worth of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all it takes. And I preached my little heart out. And when I'd come home late at night, I was traveling back and forth, working at the glove factory in Chillicothe during the day, getting my sermon while I'm stamping out gloves and then driving 60 miles to Mercer to preach that night. So I had eight hours of glove stamping to, to get a sermon. Then I'd get home about 11, 11.30 at night, and my parents were always wait, uh, waiting up for me. How'd it go? And, and I remember one time I had said to them, you know, I've come to the conclusion it's a whole lot easier to get the unsaved saved than it is to get the saved revived. Well, I preached my little heart out, and we had, we had some good things happen in that, in that service. But there was, there was one man that he was, he was gripping the pews. He just wouldn't budge. And I didn't know what was going on. I, I knew he was under conviction, but he just wouldn't budge. And the next time I saw that pastor, after I finished the revival, he said he, he came forward the following Sunday after you ended the revival and gave his heart to the Lord. And I go, well, good, but rats. <laughs> I just missed it. <laughs> and I said, what was, you know, what was that about? He said he wanted to come forward in the revival, but he wanted to get saved under his pastor. <laughs> I never, never heard anything like that in all my life. So he's going like, man, I, you know, I don't know if I can make it till next Sunday or not. I want to get saved today. And when finally I left and the pastor got up, he made a beeline to the altar and said, finally, <laughs> and got that little evangelist out of the way, I can get saved now. <laughs> I've seen some hard-hearted cases, and you know some. Just hold on. Just keep praying. You might pray, for, or pray up an earthquake for them. <laughs> Whatever it takes, you don't know where that breaking point is, but don't you quit praying for them. For the first time, we finally see people in the book of Revelation beginning to turn to God. What are you willing or unwilling to endure in God's behalf if it means somebody is going to come to the Lord? What are you willing or unwilling to do and do you get weary in waiting to see that crack in their foundation and you just quit praying I, I give up these these people are gone it's over they don't want God 
Uh, how many of you here today can think of somebody, don't just raise your hand because you think it's time to raise your hand, but how many of you here can think of somebody today that represents that hard case that you want them to get saved? Can I see your hand? But they just haven't got saved yet. God, I'm asking you to put the pressure on them. These people who have lifted their hands, I'm asking them to continue to pledge to pray. But God, turn up the heat. Send the earthquake. Send a rattlesnake. I don't care what you say.